Hello, listeners. Welcome back, you guys. It's episode 16 of the Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty. Jenny here to bring you a new episode in the fantastic and exciting world of archaeology and history news and goings-on and things and stuff. So thanks for listening to this, your favorite podcast of all time, right? Uh, it's going to be a fun one today. I'm sorry I've been a little bit out of the loop lately. I was out of town uh, camping all of last week without internet access or technology of almost any kind uh, on a job, <laughs> which was a nice little break from society. I enjoy this every, every once in a while. But uh, it was a good time, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit later today. So that was great. I actually, you guys are not going to believe this. I got to read a fictional book. This hasn't happened in quite some time. And as you know, I am a lover of all nerdy, geeky things. And so literature, yes, is amongst those fantastic otherly things I like to do with my life. And uh, I've been so immersed in my thesis lately, I really haven't gotten to do much reading. And so I was super excited actually to barricade myself in the woods in nature um, and thrust off the chains of technology that have strapped me to my computer keyboard uh, for <laughs> months and sit down with an actual book that is not about history and read it and enjoy it. And so I had just finished it and I feel wonderful and I feel like I can't focus or get back to reality now, but it was worth it. I'd do it again. And also my book was, I listened to a little bit of it on audiobook today and all of the accents are British and so I might slip into a slight British accent from here or there throughout the podcast today uh, just because it, I don't know, I've been talking in a British accent for like a week now. So do apologize for the terrible nature of my awful British accent. It will probably skip around a little bit, but just be prepared for that because it's probably coming, knowing me. I have a thing with accents. I don't know. I pick them up and then I can't get rid of them. So anyway, enough about me. Let's start talking about today's fantastic, fun topic. I know I usually do news stories or, or things that are related to my life, and I'm I, unfortunately I don't have a news and goings on story today. Although I will do the jingle if you missed that from the last couple episodes, right? <clears throat> news and goings on from around the spheroid. You're welcome. And uh, but today instead we're actually going to talk about my week because I think a lot of my listeners who don't work in the world of archaeology are interested in hearing about. What we actually do uh, on a day-to-day basis when we're out in the field and what type of jobs we work on. And so I thought I'd give you a little taste of what it's like to go out on an archaeology project. Um, I had a really great time last week working on one, so why not share about that? And then you can also learn about the history of the area where I was working and all of that stuff. So I figured we'd start with that. So I live in New Mexico at the moment. Uh, My husband is stationed here in the military, and so that's why... We reside currently in the uh, state, and so I was looking for CRM jobs in the area, you know, a couple hours distance away, something I could drive to easily, work for a little bit, and then, you know, not get too far away, come back home. And uh, so I found this great project in the Zuni Mountains, which are west of Albuquerque, New Mexico, basically in the middle of the state, just south of Highway 40. There's this huge 
mountain range called the Zuni Mountains. And uh, they were extremely popular logging territory during the pioneer age and the turn of the last century. So uh, the National Park Service has been doing surveys through the Zuni Mountains to try and map and record remnants of this logging venture, uh, which was uh, moving through the area basically between 1890 and 1930, a little bit after the industrial boom hit the West. And so I went out there with the Park Service as a uh, in an effort to map more of these railroads and also the remains of the campsites or mill sites uh, where the loggers and millers worked throughout this period. So I thought this was really interesting and related to me because I work on industrial archaeology in my research. So I was really excited to take my knowledge from southeastern industrial archaeology and sort of transplant it into the southwest and see what was going on out there and how it compared. And this is also a period just after the period that I specialize in, mid mid to early 19th century. And so this is just after that, and I thought it'd be really interesting to also see the transition in life ways and technologies and materials being used just after all the stuff that I've been looking at. So I actually did get to see all of this stuff, which was super exciting. So anyway, I went out there and we were all camping. So I brought my big old tent. Apparently people, archaeologists tend like to use like extremely small single tents because they're easy to fold up and hike around with. I, on the other hand, do not own a single tent. My tent is humongous. It's the, it's a family tent. I use it like with my family. I've got three dogs. We don't know, we need a lot of space. So I brought my tent and it was so humongous. Everyone there was like super jealous because they hated their single person tents and they were totally <laughs> uncomfortable all week long. And I'm like lounging in the lap of luxury in my gigantic palace tent. But anyway. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I like camping. Uh, it was cold, I'm not gonna lie. We were at about 7,400 feet altitude up there, and uh, it was a bit chilly in the evening, and my uh, sleeping bag was not entirely uh, keeping out the cold, but, you know, besides these little inconveniences, it's still a really good time to get out in nature and, you know, camp and enjoy outdoors and not have to worry about things like, I don't know, like Facebook or how many tweets I tweeted today or that type of stuff. So yeah, so the typical workday for us was about 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And it was super, 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 super hot up there during the day out in the middle of New Mexico, uh, middle of nowhere. Uh, so yes, we had to stay heavily hydrated. We had all of our backpacks with our tools and materials. I have a big uh, field bag backpack that I always uh, work with that has all of my gear in it. So we basically are hiking around all afternoon with those packs on our backs, which is pretty laborious. So maybe not work for the faint of heart. <laughs> but so you do have to be, you know, physically able to do this type of stuff and, and uh, be ready to deal with little, you know, annoyances like maybe not so much having toilets any, you know, or things like that. So... <laughs> Uh, carry wet wipes was, is my suggestion for you friends. Carry lots of wet wipes with you at all times. They will come in handy. So uh, we start by learning a little bit about the history of the Zuni Mountain Railroad, which is the company whose railroading efforts we are tracking. 
Now, of course, the history is important, and when we're following these railroad tracks, we're recording about the events of that time period, which is great, and the history is awesome, but in anthropology, we try to focus, of course, on the human element, because anthropology is the study of humanity. And so we are very also interested in looking at how this piece of history affected people and people's lives and the way that technology and these situations changed human activity. And so our focus wasn't only on just seeing where the railroad went, but seeing how people were living within that context alongside the railroad and in this life as industrialists and loggers. So, and then for me, of course, is like the most important aspect of this. So the fact that me and my group discovered a mill workers, or a, a logging workers camp and all of their cabins and belongings and all this stuff was like super awesome to me because that is my main focus in this. I want to know what life was like for them and what type of things they were using in order to adapt to their environment out in the woods and then the hot summers out in New Mexico and their environment and how they were thriving in it or not thriving in it or however they were doing in it. So I thought that was the best part of it for me. But anyway, we started out by uh, learning a little bit about the history and then we would go into the field and all week we spent hiking, looking for traces of these railroads and the, the lives of the people who were working on them and we were recording them by mapping and describing and listing all the things we were seeing and taking pictures. Uh, we were also GPSing the entire thing. So we were taking points of reference that you can map uh, when you get back from the field. So at the end of the day, you have this big map of the railroad and then all of the associated artifacts and assemblages uh, that go with the railroad. And then you can put that all on this awesome little computer program and have it all mapped out for you and printed out and and uh, use that in your assessment of how to deal with the archaeological sites that we found. So, and this is important because the area that we were in is a national forest, and so it's under the purview of the Park Service, and they can't necessarily excavate every single archaeological site in every national park. That would be, that would take forever, and it'd be awesome, but that's just not how reality works. <laughs> so it's important to map this stuff and to know what we're dealing with so that we know the history, but so we also know what's out there so that say in case, which we were very worried about during the week, there was a wildfire ripping through the area, the Park Service knows what type of archaeological sites and heritage sites are out there and they can make the appropriate efforts in those types of situations to try and preserve certain things that they deem to be in danger of being destroyed. So once they have this map, now they know where all this stuff is and what the sites are like so that if they need to act, they know how to go and, and try and preserve this stuff. So, and then they can also think about maybe turning that one of our areas or that into some type of national uh, landmark or, and, you know, there's a, a whole number of things you can do after you've gathered the information, which is the first part, which is what we were doing of the entire process. So 
that's how it all works, basically. And uh, that's what we did all week. So I think, why don't we talk a little bit about the history of the Zuni Mountain Railroad? And hopefully you all are fans of pioneering history and all of this stuff in the West, because this is what it's all about out here. Um, It's a very pervasive part of Southwestern and Western history. And so uh, I think it's uh, good to good to get a grasp on what was happening in this part of the country throughout this specific period. And so uh, the Zuni Mountain Railroad is also important because it was a, a support for the growth of the city of Albuquerque. All of these industries sort of interplayed throughout the region by the development of railroads and the ability to ship the pine that was coming out of the Zuni Mountains to Albuquerque Mills to produce and provide this lumber for the world market, which really allowed Albuquerque to boom at the turn of the century. So it's not just something that affects only that small area in the mountains, it affects a much larger, uh, a much larger periphery zone around it. So like I said, the, the railroads basically functioned between about 1890 and 1930, and they were able to be developed because of the railroad moving across the west during this point. Uh, It started production of a couple of specific railroad lines in the area in the 1850s and 1860s, specifically the Atlantic Pacific Railroad, and um, that was later called the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, which runs just north of the Zuni Mountains. This land was actually provided with a federal land grant for the specific purpose of the development of these railroads. So the government was behind the growth of the industry in this area. And so timber in the Zuni Mountains became uh, super important in 1880 with the St. Louis to San Francisco Railroad, um, which basically had begun construction going from Albuquerque to the West Coast. So this is very close nearby, and it's going to be a major line of transportation for not only people, but goods as well. And so the forest provided the market also for the pines because the Zuni Mountain Pines were also being used as the railroad ties themselves to build this railroad. So in order to make the railroad to ship the timber to Albuquerque and other places for manufacture, they also had to cut the pine to build the railroad so that they could ship the timber. It's a big circular thing. Uh, So anyway, uh, it was important and developers got interested in it right away because they could see that there was a need and a lot of potential for logging throughout the area. Also because this is the Southwest, and if you hadn't noticed, it's a little bit deserty, maybe, you know, like for a lot of it. So areas with a lot of good timber, and this area has some great pine trees, kind of a gold mine industrially, if you're thinking about providing raw materials for the building up of the infrastructure of the area. Which is what I find, of course, in the southeast. There's a lot more opportunity, but there's certain areas like where my mills are located for my research site that have just this specific combination of traits that make it just an excellent spot for logging. And sort of the Zuni Mountains are like this in the southwest, basically. 
So they got a lot of developers coming in interested in starting these railroad companies, the first of which in the Zuni Mountains was the Mitchell Brothers of Michigan. Michigan, home of my relatives and ancestors, uh, who I don't think were ever involved in milling, but the Mitchell Brothers were involved in milling. They received, uh, in 1892, permission to start their railroad company, and they started building and uh, were running at least one of their first locomotives in 1892. Uh, one of <laughs> their locomotives, by the way, built in Lima, Ohio. All of my Gleeks out there, can you hear me? If you like the show Glee, then you know what I'm talking about, because it takes place in Lima, Ohio. And I've just admitted to you all that I am a humongous Gleek, and I'm not ashamed of it. Not even this season! I faltered a little bit at the end of the last one, but I'm back on track, people. Uh, except for the completely ridiculous story about Rachel just, like, landing her first audition in a leading role on Broadway. Come on! So unrealistic! And don't even get me started on Santana. Ugh. Anyway, this is not a Glee podcast, but if anyone's interested in hearing one, let me know in the comments, because I could probably make that happen. Uh, anyway, back to the more exciting topic of logging in the Southwest. Uh, so the Mitchell brothers were doing okay in their the, this first big venture, although they did have some setbacks, such as their first train was lost in a derailment. And unfortunately, it's a terrible thing. No one was terribly, terribly hurt. The local Albuquerque paper uh, explains it, and, and they say, uh, the engineer, R.W. Ryan, and I'm quoting, a corpulent man, because apparently that's super important, uh, was seriously hurt from being thrown under the wreck. So I'm guessing perhaps his corpulence helped protect him from sustaining more serious injuries because that sounds like it would not be a good time. But maybe that's why it was important, who knows. Uh, anyway, back after that, they were up and running not long after, and then randomly, out of the middle of nowhere, the Mitchell brothers packed up and moved back to Michigan. Um, probably because Michigan is much more pleasant than New Mexico. It's a temperate place, and it's not as dry and dirty. That would be my guess, although it does smell like cows. So, there. So, the next major company that came into the railroad was the American Lumber Company, who purchased the land from the Mitchells and built a sawmill near Albuquerque in 1903. And this is when logging in the Zunis really picks up, because the American Lumber Company starts kicking things into high gear. And uh, so, basically, from this point on, they logging continues until about 1930. There's a bunch of different owners and investors in the lumber company and the Zuni Railroad. And I'm not going to go through the whole list, because there's a bunch. But let's see, what's important to know about this period and the railroad? So, this spot that we were camping and uh, working in is really isolated. It's way out in the middle of nowhere go off of the highway, which is basically just sitting, like, I don't know where we were, bleh, nowhere. And then you drive down into the mountains, and it's all super rough driving and crazy. We had these big four-wheeling trucks and all this stuff to get to our sites, um, and nobody lives out there. But anyway, the closest transfer junction for the railroad lines 
in the Zunis uh, was the town of, uh, it's spelled Thoreau, um, like T-H-O-R-E-A-U, but apparently it's pronounced through. Um, I'm not sure why that is, but that's just how they like it down there. So, <laughs> so basically from Albuquerque to through or Thoreau, if you are civilized, uh, there's about, the, the railroad heads southwest from through, and there's about 35 miles of railroad built uh, by 1905 down there, and it's employing about, the entire system is employing about 1,500 men who are working on the railroad. And I'm going to sing the song, I'm going to sing the song, I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the railroad just to pass my time away. You know, I sang this last week to my compadres who literally, I don't, like, none of them knew that song. I don't know how that's possible. I know the entire thing. It's a long song. <laughs> I know every verse. I don't know. You would think that they would have done their homework and found every song applicable to working on the railroad before they headed down for this job. But they did not. Irresponsible. So, anyway, um... So, like I was saying, there were about 1,500 men working on that railroad. And as operations grew, the Albuquerque Mill added a planing mill, box and sash, and door factories. And then they started getting these mill towns popping up at several different places nearby, such as Kettner, Sawyer, McGaffey, um, and several other small locations. And mill towns are, um, usually they're just kind of like these quickly constructed little avenues of cabins where all the mill workers and loggers live while they're down there doing their job. And they're not always occupied by family members or anything like that, but sometimes they can grow into actual small communities. And sometimes those communities can actually persevere and become big communities. Uh, there's a lot of towns in industrial areas that are actually only there because of industrialism and the towns and cabins that the original workers set up um, when they were there. So yeah, we have a couple of those towns in the area and we were looking for more uh, during our survey, more places where the loggers and millers were living and working. And I found them because I'm awesome. So, yes, um, apparently some of these mill towns around the area were kind of rough and tumble places, you know, kind of rough. It's, but, I mean, think about it. If it's like, you know, 1900 and you're a laborer who is working down in the mountains in the southwest and you just build a bunch of cabins with all of your guy friends that you're working with and you're all like big manly outdoorsy guys doing labor, lumbering and milling and sawing. Um, I can imagine that might be a place over brimming with uh, hormones, testosterone, and manly sweat and things. So, yeah, I'm not surprised they were a little bit rough and tumble. Some of them were even uh, documented as having illegal saloons popping up in them during the Prohibition era, which I always think is quite interesting and something that can be proven with the archaeology. Haha. <laughs> Because um, one of the things that's most commonly found in historical sites are bottles. And among those, uh, alcohol bottles such as wine and liquor are probably some of the most plentiful artifacts you will find on a historical site. 
and this was no exception. <laughs> so yes, probably a lot of these guys doing some uh, some illegal drinking during this period. Uh, that's okay. I don't mind. Uh, but despite the uh, craziness, some of these mill communities also included families, women, and children of the laborers. They built some shops and facilities around the mill towns so that people could actually live semi-normal lives while they were working down there, which I think is pretty cool. So um, some interesting incidents on the railroad include a 1923 locomotive crash which is said to be the result of a feud between the engineer whose name is get this slim dentlin haha <laughs> that's a great name slim dentlin engineer of, of locomotives he sounds like a character in a in a penny mystery uh, anyway, he was the engineer of train number six, and apparently he was in a feud with crew men members from the McKinley Land and Lumber Engine Company. And because he hated these men so much, Slim turned his engine loose on the other train that they were on, wrecking the train and injuring the targets of his feud. The guy was like freaking crazy. He let the crazy out. Uh, and he destroyed an entire locomotive train in the process. Man, Slim, you needed some more of that illegal booze, is what I'm saying, I guess. So, anyway, hey, that was interesting. Also, in 1929, the owner of the McGaffey Company, Amasa McGaffey, of Linden, Vermont. Hey, Vermont, shout out. That's where my husband's from. Vermont mountains are so pretty. Uh, anyway, this McGaffey guy who owned the logging and railroad company at that time was from the Green Mountains of Vermont, which is where he first got into logging, funnily enough. So he's the Zuni Railroad owner in 1929, and unfortunately, he dies tragically when he, the plane he's taking from Albuquerque to LA crashes on nearby Mount Taylor. And he disappeared for several days after taking off and nobody was able to find them. Apparently, they located the wrecked plane later on and all occupants on board were deceased. So, poor Mr. McGaffey of Linden, Vermont was no more. And this kind of spelled the beginning of the end for the Zuni Railroads um, because they really were never able to be revived um, there was one more owner after that, but he really didn't do diddly, so logging stopped there a year later in 1930, and that was the end of the dear old Zuni Mountain Railroad, which, like I said, was extremely important to the development of the nearby city of Albuquerque, or Albuquerque, if you've seen Titanic the Musical, which I am going to guess literally no one who is listening to this right now, except maybe my husband, has seen. So, that's what I have to say about the history of the Zuni Mountain Railroad. And um, I'm gonna stop talking about that right now because if I keep talking, I'm gonna sing the railroad song again. And I don't think you guys wanna hear it. So, let's move on to something else. Miss Jenny, why don't you talk a little bit about the archeology span down at the site? and what you all are doing about it, and generally what you're looking for, and all the things you found, and uh, your methods, and all the interesting things going on uh, in the ground out there. Uh, oh, oh, really? That's what you'd like to hear? 
Well, well, I would be delighted to tell you a little bit about the archaeology of the Zuni Mountains as we discovered it. So, yes, uh, the archaeology stuff, I'm sure you guys are probably interested in, right? So, what exactly in your mind do you think people were leaving behind from this railroad venture? So, obviously, we've got a bunch of snaking railroads that coming that are coming down off of the main line and going in throughout the mountains. They have to be easily accessible for loggers bringing all of the ponderosa pine down from the hills and the mountains. They need to be able to get those logs and trees, felled trees, down to the rail line so that they can put it on there and then get that up to the main railroad to take it to Albuquerque and other na- uh, nearby mills. So you've got a main, a couple main railroad lines, and then you've got what are called spurs, which are tinier railroad lines leading off of that main line into different crevices and cracks in the mountains so that there is an easier access to get trees from their original location to the bigger railroad. And one of the ways you got the trees after they had been felled to your spur or your railroad line was by a horse cart and they had these carts that they would attach the trees to with these humongous wheels because you know the area out there is very uneven it's full of boulders and cliffs and hills so you got to have something pretty stable to pull your trees down to the rail line with and so they used to have horses or oxen that they would hook these humongous carts up to put the trees down and then have them dragged to the spur or the main rail line so that they could transport it. Now also, if you've ever driven next to a modern railroad, you'll notice that most of them are built, uh, are laid on a little bit of built up earth called a berm. And so you have a whole bunch of different types of earthworks that go along with the construction of the railroad that you can also be looking for that will give you the clues as to where the railroad was located. Uh, earthworks like berms are generally, you know, you can see them pretty clearly, especially in this type of atmosphere. Sometimes you might find a ditch. Uh, you might also find rock walls uh, which were built to support a certain portion of the railroad on uneven on uneven land and of course you've got trestles trestles are super fun they are basically just a big wooden bridge that they built to take the railroad straight across a gap in the land or a gully or a big you know drop off or something like that you've got to get the railroad off and it's not a real roller coaster so you can't really like you know take it screaming down the 70 degree angle hill and then back up it again that doesn't really work so much when you've got humongous trees on the back of the rail uh, of the cars so you need to get straight across that and that's why trestles are built they're also fun to say. Just say it with me. Trestles. Trestles, 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 trestles. It's fun. So you've got earthworks, trestles, the actual rail lines and rail spurs. You've got masonry and rock walls. Um, those are just uh, probably the most obvious physical indicators of the rail line itself. And then the rails were made out of a combination of wooden and rock supports with the metal rail lines on top of them. 
The most obvious being the rail ties, which are the wooden cross ties that go across the, beneath, right beneath the, the metal rail lines. Uh, they didn't leave the metal rail lines behind in most cases. They, the nature of logging here was such that they would be in and out of an area quite quickly. So they would build a spur off of the main rail line down this one gully, and then they would spend a week or two clearing out all of the pine they could from that area. And then once they'd taken pretty much all of the, the trees that were mature enough to be removed, they would pack up their stuff, take the rail lines with them, and move them to a new area. So these were really sort of short occupation areas for most of where we were in the mountains. Uh, so they didn't leave the metal behind, but they did leave a lot of the spurs or, or the rail ties behind. So we did have a lot of really old, broken, splintered um, rail tie fragments and some complete rail ties, usually located either in their original placing uh, where the railroad was or very nearby perhaps having fallen to the side or being disturbed, falling down a cliff, something like that. So usually wherever the railroad was, you will find fragments of the railroad ties, the wooden railroad ties. And of course, um, organic materials like wood don't always survive in archeological sites, depending on the environment and the situation, what other things have come in contact with the area and the age. Luckily for us, this is close enough in our history and it's, it's uh, in a very dry climate, very arid climate. Uh, and the railroad was left on the surface. It wasn't buried. It wasn't, you know, shoved in a midden when they left and deposited in the ground. It was left on top. And because of the environmental conditions, most of this wood is still there. So it has survived up until this point. Um, because, of course, organic material, once you cut it down, it starts to deteriorate. And eventually it will disappear. Uh, for the most part, at least, as far as we can tell archaeologically. So at least for now, we can see these awesome rail ties. And then there's other industrial materials that are also left behind. Um, maybe a lot of stuff uh, seems to have been broken and discarded at the site of the rail. Uh, so you've got a lot of metal pieces that were part of the fixtures that connected railroads or anchored them to the wood, like spikes and things like this, that have been left behind in the wood or around the rail, um, either because they missed them, they forgot to get them, they didn't care, maybe that one was stuck in really hard and they didn't want to take the time to remove it, so they left it, or whether because it broke and they just tossed it aside because they couldn't use it again. So then you have that type of stuff. Um, also, you have personal items and residential structures for the areas where we could locate related to where workers were living. So they're not that common. There's, you know, a couple handful throughout the area. Uh, but there's also sort of this debitage on the sides of the rail from just your daily activities while you're working there. So obviously you've got to eat and the majority of the things, personal scattered items you find nearby the rail are food items. And so you've got a lot of bottles, like I said before, for your drinks. You've got, in this period, you're starting to get machine manufactured cans, which uh, were, this is kind of the first period where you see food really being 
served in cans. I think they were probably eating straight out of the cans because you don't find a lot of, in this context, there's not really ceramics anywhere near the railroad. So they probably weren't using plates and they were probably, we've got some uh, silverware, so they were probably just eating right out of the can. So you've got stuff like that. You've also got reminders of the horses they had with them. So we have horseshoes, horse corrals, at least the remnants of them. And just a couple random personal items that people drop or leave behind. You never know what type of stuff you're going to uncover with that. Uh, but for the most part, it was just basically the trash from what they leave behind every day from eating and uh, working on the railroad. So those are the type of archaeological things that we are discovering. Now, I was lucky because we had hiked following this railroad for several miles when my team went through this passage in the mountain following the rail. We came out on the other side and it was a huge valley in front of us and this beautiful open space to its left. And we tracked the rail through the open space to the other side of the valley where there was a huge gully. And our railroad disappeared on the side of the gully. And we looked down and inside the gully was the remains of a trestle. Trestle. I just love that word. It was a collapsed trestle that they probably had just left in situ in its place and then ran away once they were all done and eventually the trestle buckled and fell to the bottom of the gully and then it was sitting there. So we found it. It was pretty cool just hanging out and you can see where it connected to the other side of the gully. So that was where our survey ended because we couldn't follow it at that point from where we were. So we started looking around and we were doing a survey by walking transects. And basically what that is is everyone who's surveying spreads out a certain distance. Um, we were about seven meters apart from each other. And yes, we use the metric system in archaeology in case you didn't know this. So be prepared if you're ever about to go out to a site. Make sure your ruler is metric and your tape measures and all this stuff and uh, you'll be all good to go. Um, it's actually much easier than our system. I hate to be a traitor to my country, but I'm wholeheartedly throwing my support against uh, behind the metric system. <laughs> anyway, um, so we're walking in straight lines, kind of alongside each other about seven meters apart, scanning the ground for artifacts. Uh, that's how we locate them <laughs> during a survey uh, with our eyes. We like to use our senses in archaeology very tactile. And so we're scanning the ground and I noticed that we're starting to get a lot of random metal items uh, on the ground, which is usually associated with the rail, different things for the locomotives or the railroad itself get tossed to the side. And, and that's fine. And then I walk into this little place and I'm like, boom, ground is covered in ceramics and glass. And ceramics and glass are a huge indicator of residential activity because they are usually the remnants of eating. So I start looking around and boom, there's a huge site all around me. Uh, historic glass, which I looked at and started to identify as late 19th to early, early 20th century glass. Um, you can tell, there, oh, maybe I'll go into that, but there's a lot of specific manufacturing things about how, how items were made uh, commercially and that system of being able to tell how something is manufactured with what materials and what style 
is how we kind of trace the change in commodities through time. And so when I see a bottle that it has a flanged lid on top or something like that, that uh, doesn't appear to have any mold seams or machine-made seams going over the top of the rims, I know specifically that it's going to be from an earlier period prior to the early 19th century or something, you know, uh, just as an example. And so once you get to know how these styles work and generally what is accepted and used in different parts of the world throughout that period of time, you can look at these assemblages and say, oh, okay, I see there's a piece of pearlware here, which is a specific type of ceramic usually used in um, tablewares. And so I know that pearlwares generally weren't made past 1840, so this site is probably going to date to that period and you know when when they were using pearlwares so um that's what i did throughout the entire site i recorded all of the artifacts i was seeing i tried to identify as many of them as possible and give my opinion as to what they indicated as far as the site so whether i thought the site was located near a structure or in a structure uh, what it was being used for like consumption uh, daily life ways and activities and eating and cooking and these type of things. Uh, so that's what I did, which was super cool. I loved looking at all these little artifacts. You don't get to remove them from the site, not if you're only doing a ground survey. Uh, there's different levels of survey and excavation that you have to adhere to depending on what your project is doing. Some projects you'll get hired on to excavate. That's great. That's a little bit later in the process. This is a survey where we are not excavating, we're just identifying and recording sites. So I had a humongous list and I'm a huge organizational freak so I wrote it all down and then I rewrote it so that it looked neater <laughs> and more organized, which is what I do. I don't know, I just have that type of mind. And I found lots of great stuff um, and basically all of the things I was finding hinted at a date for this occupation between 1900 and 1920. Um, and we know specifically because of certain identifying and diagnostic artifacts that it didn't date past 1820. So that was really fun. And then so I'm recording this stuff. We walk a little bit further in towards the ravine on the other side and we're like, holy Moses, there are houses, structural remains over there, like big time. Okay, they're close to the ground, they're not still standing structures, but you can definitely see in the foreground articulated logs in a square. So we knew at that point we were dealing with an occupation area, and so we went over, we actually discovered after scanning the entire site, six cabins, the remains of six cabins, all the same size, same construction, same materials, very crude cabins just probably put up very quickly for these mill workers and I'm guessing probably because they were constructing the trestle that we found nearby uh, they needed somewhere to stay for a little bit longer while they went through the area and uh, were building that trestle. So we're thinking that there was a bunch of guys camping there and they cut some timber and made some cabins for themselves which is so it's totally exciting! We also found a corral, which we're guessing was probably where they kept their horses. Um, or maybe members of the team that just didn't play well with others. Uh, possible, you never know. 
But yeah, there was a huge artifact scatter across this entire site, you guys. Lots of cans, sanitary cans, which were used for food storage, tablewares, glasswares, bottles, metal, machine parts, and metal's weird. You get a lot of iron and metal objects that you just can't identify sometimes because they're just so random. Um, <laughs> so you get a big, you know, pile on your sheet of indeterminate iron objects because you can't always identify, you know, depending on how well-preserved the remains are. A lot of this stuff is just crushed to, like, smithereens, and none of it's still intact. Um, bottles, plates, cups, nothing is intact. It's all fragmentary. So, for the most part. So I had fun recording those. I found some other cool stuff. I found a clock clog. Well, that's hard to say. A clock cog. A clock cog. Uh, which was pretty cool. I found a button made out of bone, you guys. A bone button. That was fun. I almost said Beau Baton for some, for some reason right there. I don't know why. We're not talking about Harry Potter. Not even related. Different language. That's where my mind goes. But, and then I also actually found some remains of Native American activity at the site in the form of pottery and ceramics of Native American origin, which was very interesting. Obviously, the site was occupied long before the loggers got there. Um, if you didn't know, the Zuni Mountains are named after the Zuni people, who are a Native American tribe of Puebloans uh, from the area. So I was not surprised. In fact, the entire area, pretty much everywhere we were surveying, had a really heavy level of debitage. Um, which is basically the cast-offs of stone uh, lithic working. When you're napping a tool or a weapon, you obviously have to nap out of a big core of rock, and we, they were napping out of chert there, which is a specific type. And all of the little pieces that fly off in the process of making your tool, um, it's called debitage, and we had tons of it just spread all over the place. It would That would have been a survey on itself, but um, it's noted, but it's not the focus of our survey, so we didn't do too much about that. Uh, so that was pretty cool. And that was basically the big stuff for me for the whole week. That Mapping that um, campsite was the, just the coolest thing, and it was really pretty out there. Don't tell anyone, but generally I'm not a huge fan of the Southwest. Ah, uh, don't send me hate mail. It's just that it's so dusty and dirty and dry and prickly and dead. I kind of, I just don't like dead things. I like soft grass under my feet and rolling mountains in the ocean. And uh, that's not really the same thing as the Southwest. It's so rocky and craggy and dry and ugh. I'm, there's some nice parts, and I every, I'm sure everywhere is good, and people are nice, and all good things. I'm just saying my personal preference is for the Northeast, because that's my home. Anyway, uh, that's pretty much all I wanted to say about the archaeological stuff there, because I'm sure I could go on and on about it, but it would bore you. So I'll keep it a little bit shorter, but just, you know, for your general information, if you are wondering about what type of things archaeologically we're looking for, what we do when we find it, and, like, the specifics as to what was left behind from this railroad, 
I thought maybe that would be interesting. And I will put up some pictures of some of the things that we found on my blog so you can see in person what I'm talking about here. Um, so that was the survey. It was super fun, you guys. I'm glad I went. And I just wish, you know, I feel so like empty when we don't, when I don't excavate and I'm not able to like bring, you know, the artifacts with me and make sure that they're going to be preserved and, and just leaving them outside seems so harsh. Those poor, lonely little artifacts. But that's okay. They're, they're going to be fine. And the information will be preserved for future generations and for the, uh, for the historical and cultural heritage of the region. So there! My job here is done. Oh, I also wanted to throw in that we went on a little field trip during our week there to a wonderful National Historic Landmark, uh, the El Moro site, archaeological site, which I highly recommend if you are ever in the region. It was delightful! We climbed all the way up to the top of it. It's this huge rock structure, cliff, you know, dramatic looking cliff edge. And you climb it, it's about a two mile hike all the way around if you go up it and down again. And it's just wonderful. Uh, it's run by the National Park Service and they do a really great job. You get to the top of El Moro and there is a Pueblo there, uh, which is the living area for the Puebloan Indians who occupied the area of, I believe, between 900 and 1200 AD, uh, something around there, maybe also probably a little bit later. But anyway, it's very impressive. Only a portion of it has been excavated, and it's really freaking cool because they lived on top of this stupid cliff edge mountain thing. And so they had a kiva, which is this um, ritual, important ritual, uh, circular space um, underground, which they did all of their, uh, a lot of their ritual activities in. And that was the first kiva I'd ever seen in person, which was really neat. And so we hiked around there. There's another Pueblo on the other side of the mountain that is not excavated and covered in cactuses. Probably a good way to keep all of those nasty people who steal from archaeological sites away from it. And then if you go down to the bottom of the uh, El Moro rock structure, you get a whole bunch of fantastic rock carvings. Not that I really approve of, like, stamping your name on the side of a big, like, piece of rock wall just because you're there, but um, it is pretty interesting to watch the uh, progression of people traveling through the area throughout history. Because, of course, you have pictographs and carvings from the original Native American settlers there, the residents of El Moro, um, and those are very, very cool. I'll put some pictures up for you to see. And they're, you know, drawing some representations of local animal life. There's some symbolic images that uh, we don't know the meaning of, and that's very interesting as well to imagine. And then we also have, like, people from the ages of the Spanish conquistadores to the present, well, near present, carving messages and names and pictures on the rock wall there. So it's a very cool rock art site. You get guys, I think, from the mid-1500s and early 1500s, well, maybe like 1530s, when the Spanish were exploring in the southwest, looking for gold and all this crazy riches, and then they basically are all dead, and then they leave empty-handed because they were big failures. 
Uh, but <laughs> we've got guys from that period signing the wall, being like, ay, in all Spanish, which is really great. Ay, fantastic conquistadore that I am. I'm traveling across this great land and I am bringing Christianity to the heathens and I will return to Spain with buckets of gold and all this stuff. Anyway, it's cool. And then you get, so you've got all these like sort of Spanish guys. They're replaced in the 1800s. You get people who are moving out west right after and around the Civil War, which I thought was very interesting. And then, yeah, and then just a bunch of random people, uh, so that's really cool and they all have stories and they do a really great job in the park of explaining to you what uh, a lot of the more interesting carvings on the wall are all about in their histories specifically so yeah it's amazing there's a huge watering hole there naturally that is uh, filled with rainwater and that's the whole reason why this area was settled basically um, obviously you're in a desert and having a water source is going to be the most important thing to your survival so the fact that El Moro, the mountain, has this natural watering hole was why all of the uh, original settlers and natives who came to the area were drawn to stay there. So I'm sure it supported the Puebloans when they lived there and then when other native groups uh, came into the area and they started sort of fighting over the territory, it sustained them as well. And I'm sure it sustained all of those silly Spanish men not that they're silly, I'm sure they were awesome, but you get what I mean, all the Spanish and people who came afterwards who were traveling throughout the area, and then all the pioneers who passed by as they were moving west. So, very interesting piece of southwestern history there. That is highly recommended, and I will put some pictures up because it was really pretty. I know I said I don't like the southwest, but this was actually kind of cool, I hate to admit it. And that's all I'm going to talk about as far as my trip. It was great. And I'm sorry I missed you guys for a whole week. But I'm back now. You can't escape me. I'm never going away again. Kidding. So that's it for this episode, you guys. I'm really excited. I had a great time recording today and talking uh, to you about all of this fun, exciting stuff. If you have any questions for me about working or maybe how you could get involved in a project like this one yourself because believe it or not the national park service has great programs working with volunteers throughout the country on national historic landmarks and parks so uh you can always email me at uh, guide to getting dirty at gmail.com or you can message me through the website jennifermcniven.com or my blog the struggling I have so many ways you can get a hold of me. You can tweet me too at strugglingarcarch. Okay, that's going to do it for me, you guys. Thank you so, so much for listening and your continued support. It means a lot to me because I really enjoy doing this show and I do it for all of you. So keep in touch and if you have a topic that you would like to hear more about or have me address on the show, drop me a line and I will do you a solid. McNiven out! Oh, I've just got to sing it. It's driving me crazy. It's been in my head for the last hour, and I've just got to get it out. Now, really, do you insist on singing that infernal nonsense, my child? Oh, but I have to, you see. My granddad used to sing it to me when I was a wee lass, and I've just simply got to. All right, then. Go ahead now. Sing, child. One, two, three, four, I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. 
I've been working on the railroad just to pass the time away. Can't you hear the whistle blowing? Rise up so early in the morn. Can't you hear the captain shouting? Dinah, blow your horn. Oh, Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow your horn? Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow your horn? Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Someone's in the kitchen, I know. Oh, oh, oh. Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Strumming on the old banjo and singing fee fi fiddly yo fee fi fiddly oh 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 fee Bye, Billy, I owe.